welcome back to the UXRTO podcast. I'm Emily, your host here with another episode of Insights, where we talk about all bits and bobs that have to do with UX research. Today we'll be talking about a few different articles that I found pretty interesting and hopefully you find interesting as well. We'll be talking a little bit more about job postings and we'll have another discussion around more tools that you can use in your practice. This one might be a little bit unconventional, but we'll see what you think. For those of you who may be listening for the first time, UX Research Toronto is a great community that is focused around bringing together people who are interested in UX research, who might be practicing UX research, or are looking to grow their practice. We have many different events and an entire community online on Slack. If you'd like to join us, definitely check out our link to our website where you can find our Medium articles, our Twitter, and of course, the link to sign up to be on our Slack channel. We're always looking for volunteers, so if you want to get involved, definitely let one of us know or message me on Slack directly. I am just at Emily, and we'll definitely get you set, set up with something to do regarding UX Research Toronto. All right, next up we have an article that some of you might find interesting if you've ever been interested in codifying your qualitative research. This article is written by Erica Yee. PhD and it is on Medium. It's titled, Themes Don't Just Emerge, Coding the Qualitative Data. I think this is a great read. It's only about five minutes and it's under the publication Project UX, if anybody's familiar. That's because, like she says in the title, themes don't just emerge. You have to make sense of qualitative data and you can't do that without some kind of system in place. Otherwise, you're probably going to pull out things that you can't back up with actual data and more of a gut feeling. While in some instances this may work and this may be enough to convince people, most of the time when we're talking to people especially who are outside of user experience research, they might not understand that what we're seeing is a true need and instead might be seeing just what we want or what we think. So coding qualitative data is a great way to give people that data that they're looking for, but not making it into just numbers and charts where you're kind of taking away the humanness of it, which is the best part of qualitative data. As Erica points out in her article, quote, Codes in qualitative research are as important as numbers in a quantitative study. With proper coding, you can say with confidence that these findings are, in fact, representing a majority of user feedback. It also creates structure. You might say, we already have an interview script, as Erica says, but that is looking for the answers. This is giving you a script 
in order for you to get to what you're looking for in the interview. But after these people give you the answers, you then have to comb through them to really pull out the things that you're looking to learn. And that's why codifying can be really beneficial and give you a lot of weight behind what you're presenting to the people who need this research in order to create the best experience possible. So she gives a quick guide to qualitative coding, and like usual, I won't tell you everything in the article, of course, because it's much better to read it from the source, but I will give you a small taste of what Erica says in this article. So the first thing she mentions is determining the type of coding method you want to apply before the data collection. There's deductive coding and inductive coding. So deductive coding is where you have developed a codebook as a reference guide to guide you through the coding process. So this is usually made if you're already interested or you are really focused in on the existing field that you're studying and you're really well aware of it. This isn't happening too often, so a lot of people don't really use this approach and the codebook changes as you code on and it should reflect the structure of your data. However, inductive coding is used when you know little about research, about the research subject, and conducting heuristic or exploratory research. In this case, you don't have a codebook you're building on from scratch based on your data. So they have their pros and cons, but the end result should be similar. The majority of your data should be coded and be able to form a narrative is a direct quote from Erica again. So there's different ways that you can do this, which is like, for example, saying you have two participants and you ask them both about their sports habits, for example. So one person says, I play soccer at lunch with my coworkers. And participant B says, oh, I have practice three times a week at a club and I usually play tennis on my own or something. I don't know how you would play tennis by yourself, but that's what they said. <laughs> um, so you can select text and give it a code name that captures the essence of the text. But in these examples and in the example of what you're researching, your code could be completely different based on what you're looking for. So maybe these people talking about the two sports that they play can be codified completely, the whole sentence or paragraph, as sports. Maybe that's something that you're looking for. Or you could codify individual sentences or even individual words by saying, you know, that you only highlight soccer and tennis and say types of sports. Or you could say, um, you know, group sports for both, um, if both of them played sports with other people. Or you could say solo and group based on the person who plays soccer with a team and the person who plays tennis by themselves. So in this case, the detail of your code completely depends on your research question and what you're trying to get out of the data. Much like a lot of UX research, you don't have a clear guide on exactly what you should be doing and exactly what you should be looking for, but as a UX researcher, you should get 
the gist of it by now. I would hope that you would know what you're researching if you've gone and talked to people already and you have a script. So you are codifying based on what you're looking for. And in the initial coding, it's fast and relatively easy, she says, and this is step two. You can try coding sections broadly the first time around just so that you can kind of put signposts along your way and make sure that you remember certain sections or certain things that are interesting to you. And then as you go through, you get more and more specific and step three is line by line coding and this is where your codes should continue to have more details and um, you should be coding absolutely everything, she says. Then her last two steps are categorization and determining themes. I won't go too far into it because it'd be great if you continued this and read it yourself on her medium, but she does say this. Um, She actually quotes Clifford G. Christians and James W. Carey by saying, Qualitative research in its best form seeks through naturalistic observation to set up a poetic resonance with the native interpretation. So that's kind of a mouthful, but it tries to codify what they're saying is you try to codify the native interpretation in order to get the best representation of what a broad number of people have said in a qualitative interview. Again, this was written by Erica Yee, that's Y-I, PhD for Project UX on Medium, and I just want to warn you that this is an exclusive story on Medium, so you can only read three of these a month before paying the subscription fee. I was able to get it for free because this is the um, second time I've read it, so I have one more exclusive story this month, but, or no, sorry, I read another exclusive story, this is the second exclusive story I've read, but you may need to watch out for that if you want to read the whole thing. This next one is something that I see and that I'm involved in a lot at work because we're constantly developing software and new products for our clients. And it's about how to write better user stories to build better products. And this comes from the user interviews blog and it's written by Danielle Hope Diamond. And it's actually only about a month old, so pretty hot off the press if you ask me. So the byline here is the best user stories aren't made up, they're built on real user insight. If you're not familiar with the Agile framework, it basically centers around the fact that every decision that is made in the software development process should be focusing on what the user would need or why a user would find this useful. So user stories are short, simple descriptions of who the user is, what they want, and why. It highlights a user need or a problem, and your product will address these needs and problems. That is a quote from the article. So what happens with these user stories are that 
all of these user stories are captured by the UX researcher and the people who are involved in the process of creating this product or service or most likely software and they are put into a backlog so there are tons and tons of different user stories and the objective of these is so that you can build and prioritize products and features with the user in mind because everything that you're doing is supposed to be solving a problem or fulfilling a need that a user is looking for. So user stories are important because 90% of startups fail every year and this is because most of them make products that no one wants. And we've seen this before. I remember there was a something really funny that came up with new smartphones when they started to get bigger and bigger. Um, when cell phones first came out, they weren't these huge tablet-sized screens. They were smaller and they would fit into your hand a little bit better um, when I was growing up anyway. And now these phones are so big that many people can't reach all the way across the screen or go from one corner to another because the screens are so large. The, um, the solution that a Japanese firm came up with was a thumb extender. So it was this plastic thumb that you'd wear over your thumb that also had electric um, conductivity in it so that you were still able to tap the screen and by doing so you were basically extending your finger 100% or so so that you could tap all the corners of your screen at all times. It was such an awkward um, resolution to the problem which was that people were having such a hard time navigating these ginormous screens, especially people with smaller hands. And obviously it didn't do too well on the market, but that's a really interesting example of how there might be a problem out there, but the product isn't something that people want. In response to this, a little while later, I remember iPhone specifically had this feature where if you double or triple tapped the home button, it would squish your screen halfway down and move all the apps and everything so that you could essentially tap everything without having to use two hands. So that's just kind of a little anecdote of why user stories are important because I'm sure if they had done some user research they would see that people aren't asking for their fingers to be extended. Because at the end of the day products are designed for people and that's why we need to make sure that we're doing what they're asking for, what they're looking for, not necessarily something we think is the best call, um, only to put it out there and, and have it fail. So just imagine if that was a startup and they had put so much work and time and they had talked to vendors and they had created these weird plastic thumbs and they created all the packaging and the advertising and the marketing for it and all this stuff, put it out there into the market and then it fails miserably because they have no understanding of who the actual users are or what an actual solution to the problem would look like. Anyway, back to <laughs> the user interviews blog post. So that's a little bit on user stories and why they're important. So an epic 
is a user story that's so large that it needs to be broken down into smaller user stories. So an epic is, this is what they use in the article, an epic is the entire Harry Potter series and Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets is a story within that epic, so that's a user story. But she didn't break all of that down and, and just write it all at once, she, wrote, she broke it down further into chapters. So you go and start with the initiative, which could be, I want to solve the issue of people not being able to touch all of the corners of their phone screen. Then you have the epic, um, which is similar to like the Harry Potter series, like I was mentioning before. Then the user story is, as a smartphone user, I want to be able to touch all the parts of my screen because what's the point of having a screen with six inches of screen space if I can only reach so far? And then the task underneath that are the very small actionable things that you can tackle one at a time in order to eventually build it into the solution you're looking for. So a task is the small building blocks like Lego pieces. The user story is like the wall of a Lego house. The epic is the house in its entirety made up of those little bricks. And then the initiative is the neighborhood of Lego houses that you wanted to build in the first place. So since software development is iterative and ongoing, talking to users and developing user stories should be a regular practice. And this is something I'm sure that you agree with and, and are aware of, but some people, especially um, software developers, it can be very hard for them to realize that they can't just sit behind their desk all day and code things. They need to go out and talk to people. Otherwise, their coding will be for naught if people don't actually use it. And then the article continues on and says when and how to incorporate user research in your user story writing process. So qualitative data like NPS scores, product usage, etc. can give us a sense of where the problems and opportunities are. Where we have qualitative data, we can use those responses to understand what the problems are in more detail. Then we see what we already have on user stories and related topics by jumping into our active research insights. And then after you've looked through all the research, maybe you've codified it, like we were talking about before, you can paint a clear picture of where user pain is and what's driving it, where the gaps are in the current solutions and where we need to fill them in order to fulfill this need. And I will stop there before I get too far into it because this article is pretty in-depth, but it does continue on to say continuous user feedback, passive research, and surveys are very important. Um, and then there are user interviewing tips for better user stories, as well as templates, examples, how do I use re UX research to write better user stories, and etc. So this is a pretty great article. And I would definitely suggest reading it. Again, it's by Danielle Hope Diamond and it's on the user interviews blog page. Mm -hmm. 
Now I want to talk about an unconventional tool that you might not have thought of in order to increase the productivity and minimize the distractions of your research practice. Scientific American says that students are better off without a laptop in the classroom and I believe a lot of these studies that have come up saying laptops actually harm academic performance can also translate over to the workplace. How many times have you been in a meeting where everyone has their laptop open and one person is talking or presenting and everyone else is typing away? When people say, do you have any questions? Uh, half the room doesn't even look up because they're busy writing emails, typing on Slack, typing on social media, or are otherwise distracted. Part of our culture today has started to glorify this as multitasking and getting things done, but in actuality, it can really harm our performance at work, both in meetings and in one-on-one -on -one conversations, even because we're constantly distracted and trying to multitask when we can't. So this research was conducted by Michigan State University, and it suggests that laptops didn't actually enhance classroom learning, and in fact, the academic performance of students who used laptops the most in class actually declined the most throughout the school year. And this isn't the only study to suggest this. So what I'm going to suggest is not actually a software or anything computer related, but instead a very popular way of organizing yourself using just a notebook and a pen. You can probably guess what it is, but if you haven't yet, it is bullet journaling. Many people might think that bullet journaling has been co-opted by the creative community and has become some kind of hybrid between a fancy to-do list and a scrapbook. And sure, you can make it like that if you want to. You can have all different colors of pens and use washi tape and scrapbook in it and things like that. Or you can use it just bare bones as it was meant to be used in the original creation by Ryder Carroll, where it was just a notebook, a pen, and a system. The crazy thing about it is that it's highly customizable and anybody can do it because you literally just need paper and a pencil or a pen in some cases. <laughs> so bullet journaling is where you have a system where you rapidly log everything that you need to do and you keep everything that you want to remember, all of your to-dos, all of your notes, everything that you need in one place. You just kind of dump it into this notebook, but in a strategic, um, organized fashion. They have things that are called future logs, where anything that you want to schedule for a later date, you put it in this future log, and every month you go back and look at this future log and make sure you're not forgetting anything. Every day you write down your to-dos, all of your notes, everything that you have scheduled, and you can schedule these things that you want to do at a later date. You can cross off the to-dos that you've accomplished. You can also take notes and codify them in order to make sure you don't forget anything and you follow up on everything that you need to do. There is great resources on bulletjournal.com, which is the website run by the creator of the bullet journaling system, Ryder Carroll. And I would definitely suggest trying this out if you find that you are being constantly distracted and pulled in 15 different directions. With this system, 
you might be able to better focus when it comes to qualitative interviews be able to synthesize your information when it's you and your notebook instead of you trying to fight all of your distractions on your laptop i know i'm guilty of that sometimes myself as we all are of course you don't have to throw away your computer completely we still do need to email people but if there's one space and one system that you're using to keep everything together it'll be a lot harder for you to miss those insights or miss those notes that you took two months ago from that really insightful interview you had with that one person because you know exactly where it'll be it'll be on that date in your notebook underneath all of your to-dos and the notes that you took during that interview definitely check it out if you haven't already and the great thing about it again like i said before is you can customize it so if you don't like the way that he has it set up where different things are scheduled or different little icons are used in order to signify things you can do whatever you want with it and i would definitely advocate for more people using this kind of notebook system at work because i find it helps my organization and my memory and also cuts down on the amount of distractions that i have especially during meetings so this is an unconventional tool and process but i would highly suggest it One of the best things about our Slack community is that people are constantly posting awesome job and side job opportunities. One of the best things about the UX Research TO community on Slack is that there's constantly job postings for awesome positions that become available. And the other great thing about it is people who are posting it are usually working at this company or have some insight so you have a direct point of contact if you're interested in the role. So these next few jobs I'm going to talk about have been posted on this jobs and gigs Slack channel and I would highly suggest you check them out if you're interested in UX research. There's going to be a mixture of ones that are more introductory like internships and ones that need less than two years of experience, the ones that are a little bit more experienced, all the way up to senior positions that people are looking to fill. So this first one I have here is Scotiabank's Digital Factory, which is Scotiabank's design center in downtown Toronto. Currently, they're looking for senior UX researchers to join the team. And honestly, I've heard so many good things about Scotiabank as I work in the financial sector as well. I am always hearing about other jobs in the area and this one is pretty cool because the digital factory does some pretty interesting stuff. So if you like the idea of the security and structure of a large corporation but you still want to make an impact and do some cool digital stuff, definitely check out this job. They're looking for someone who's a great communicator, someone who opens sorry, someone who values open communication and working on an exceptionally transparent team, has a sense of humor, and they enjoy being a part of a tight-knit community. 
they're looking for someone who has a BA or a BS in a human behavior related field such as HCI, psychology, communication, information science, media studies, computer science, or economics. They're looking for someone with over five years of experience in applied product research, so this is really key, and they want to make sure that you have hands-on experience scoping and prioritizing research questions, research planning, data gathering, analysis, summarizing, and sharing findings. This is just a small piece of the large job description, looks pretty cool. So definitely check out jobs.scotiabank.com and just search uh, Senior UX Researcher Digital Factory and it will pop up. That one was um, shared on Slack by Aaron Levison and he is interested in talking to people who are interested in the role. So if you are on our community and you'd like to get on that, definitely message him. It was posted just this morning, actually. So hot off the press right there. The next one is for students and it's the Ontario Digital Service and they're looking for winter co-ops in user research, product design, and other digital roles. Again, I've heard great things about Ontario Digital Services. I actually am friends with four people who were interns there and they loved their time there. They thought it was so awesome and the managers and more senior management is also great. They are really focused on making um, Ontario, the government of Ontario, um, simpler, faster, and better, which I'm sure everyone can appreciate, especially with a government um, organization. So if you're, again, interested in working in a large government organization that you might not have had an opportunity to before as a student, they pay really well, you get some great opportunities, you get to meet a bunch of people, um, definitely check that one out. So this one is looking for people who work fast and realize that not one or not no two days are alike and their work impacts the lives of 14 million Ontarians, which is a lot of people, including me. <laughs> Um, they are looking for people who have the willingness to dig in and get it done as part of a highly collaborative team, ability to take ideas from pitch to production with a keen focus on details, and a drive to create, build, and deliver solutions on challenges big and small. So students definitely, definitely get on this one and apply. And Nadia is the one who posted it on Slack. And I'm sure you can message her because I believe she works there. So if you had questions about it, definitely message her right on Slack and you could talk about it with her. Um, another person on September 17th posted um, one of her clients, Intact Insurance, pretty big company, is looking to hire a freelancer slash consultant UX researcher for a full-time role on their small but mighty research team, which also includes another fantastic um, person in our community and a cop. So the person should be able to work from the intact office in downtown Toronto most of the time with some flexibility for remote work and should have mid or senior level experience. So I'm going to say probably at least three years of experience, probably more than that. And you have bonus points if you're able to mentor and train up more junior researchers. So it sounds like they're growing their team and they're looking for someone to really hone in on that and, and own it. 
So you want to be able to work independently. You have to have comfort with ambiguity, willingness to share frank opinions, and comfort in conducting research on multiple projects at once. So you can reach out to Elizabeth Allen directly because she posted it um, kind of internally on our Slack page, which is really cool. Um, so definitely check that out if you're more mid to high level or you're looking for something maybe to expand your practice. And finally, I would be silly if I didn't do this myself. UXRTO is looking for some volunteers. So of course this is unpaid, uh, but we would absolutely love to have anyone who is willing to help out with UX Research Toronto, whether you want to help organize the conference that is happening in 2019 or the meetups that are happening between now and then, as well as keeping the community alive and well, sharing some awesome stuff, maybe doing our social media or helping with inclusivity. Um, this is an awesome opportunity. I am one of the lovely volunteers. I have met so many cool people through UXRTO and if you're involved, you get exponentially more opportunities to meet people in the field. So if networking with other researchers is on your bucket list for this year, it is not too late, even though it is September, we are looking for people. So join our SOC group and look for that Google form. It is also in jobs and gigs on our SOC channel and sign up through there and we will place you in an awesome position where you can work closely with people that are just great. Even if you want to help out with this podcast, there is the ability to do that. So hop on that if you're looking for something in your spare time to get involved in or you're looking for another way to get involved. you so much for joining me on this episode of insights it's so great to have awesome listeners and it's so cool that i've been able to meet some of you through slack because you found this podcast so that's awesome if you would like to meet me or chat or you have questions or comments or concerns or suggestions or anything at all about this podcast or anything that i talked about definitely shoot us a message through our email or like I was saying before join our slack channel and message me directly because we are in an age where you can reach out to people no matter where they are and that's pretty awesome so thank you again for listening I am so happy that so many people enjoy this podcast and stay tuned in the next two weeks you will be hearing another episode of course of personas by Melanie um, she has a couple of great ones on deck and she's quite excited about this next one specifically. So make sure you check that out in two weeks time. And until then, I hope to see you around on Slack. Bye.